0: What we're going to do is open up in a word of prayer and uh, see what God has to say. Father, I ask you this morning that you would uh, open the eyes of our heart and let me get out of the way. Don't let people see me, hear me, but hear you. Father, we we have enough opinion in this world. What we need is truth, and we need your life-changing message. Would you deliver that to us today, that we might not only have knowledge, but change lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you uh, open your Bibles and turn to chapter 2 of Titus, if you're not already there. Again, I'm reading in ESV, continuing on the uh, strategy of Matt. Let's read. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. So let's just start this morning on a little journey. And let's get an overview of what this chapter has just told us. Uh, He starts off in the first part of this of instructions to the pastor in verse 1 and verse 15. He bookends this thing. In verse 1 and verse 15, he talks about instructions to the pastors about their authority to teach not just sound doctrine, but things that relate to sound doctrine, sound living. Secondly, we see from verses 2 to 10, Specific instructions that Paul gives to Titus that are unusual in Scripture. What you'll see here is that he's giving instructions that normally when you're told to love your neighbor is not to older men, younger men, younger women. It's to everyone, right? Okay, he here is now saying there's some specific instructions if you want to know how to live healthy living that has an impact for Christ, I have some specific instructions for you. So when we get to this point, when it gets to your name, and what category you're in, pay close attention. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean you can tune out everybody else, but just listen to your own, okay? Uh, And third, there's the doctrinal, doctrinal underpinnings about why this grace, why this behavior is even necessary. Okay, Paul in this book, let's get some background things for you. Paul in this book Gives uh, a description of God five times throughout the book of Titus. And that description is not God the omnipotent, God the immortal, God the omnipresent. It's God our Savior. So, do you hear his theme for the book already? He wants us to know, and he wants people to know, that God is our Savior. He's not just our judge, he's just not our lawgiver. He's just not the creator of the universe. He is our Savior. So as Christians, what message does he really want us to take to the world? That God has a rule book or that God is our Savior? It's God is our Savior. So we are going to be looking at his uh, thinking about how we can share God's plan of redemption more effectively. Okay, so the second general observation I would make is this. Um, in this chapter, they're not just instructions, but he gives unusually three reasons for his instructions. And those come in verses 5, 8, and 10. And we'll cover those in a minute. And the third observation I would make is that Paul, knowing that they already knew healthy doctrine, right? he says, but let me remind you of a couple things. And verses f- 11 to 14 provide a wonderful summary of what you might call the redemptive plan of God. Okay, God has worked in the past, God is working now, and God will work in the future, right? Okay, so let's just say what these are. So let's jump right in and start at verse 11. And the reason I'm going to start at verse 11, if you'll follow me there, it starts with a little word for. You see that? Now that's another word for because. Now, I don't know if you are like me, and I have children that always ask why? Why? And I try to not let that dictate whether I answer the question or not, or whether they have to obey or not, but it's inevitable, isn't it, that we ask why? Uh, We're going to start late tonight. Why? We're going to do this. Why? Okay, so Paul Kindly gives us the why because for means because. So let's just start with the because statement and we'll get work backwards. He's trying to say, and I can't spend a lot of time on this, the grace of God is an immeasurable subject. There is no way I could do justice with the grace of God in the time we have today. There's none. So what I'm going to do is try to communicate to you what he's trying to point out to Titus about why he included it. Okay? So let's just look at that. So grace, in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. So grace, what's that? Well, I like a definition I heard from MacArthur. It's God's unmerited favor towards wicked, unworthy sinners by which he delivers from sin and its penalty and by which God's free and completely unmerited goodness which he blesses sinners eternally. So this is a, a concept, right? It's, it's a notion that how God acts towards sinners. But it, Paul didn't say this is a definition. He said grace appeared. Now how can a concept appear? It can't. A person appeared. And that person was Jesus Christ. He appeared in Bethlehem. When God says I need to communicate my grace to mankind, he didn't send a messenger. He sent his Son. And his son said, I come. Now, look what it said about Jesus. It says, when you look at what Jesus came to do, um, he is grace personified, isn't it? It says, he called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, because of his purpose and grace. And this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The word word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when God wanted to communicate a message of grace to us, He didn't send a messenger; He sent His Son. That's what Paul's trying to say: is we have a measure, a, a, a message of grace, and what does that message do? It brings salvation. Christ's mission was none other than to bring salvation. Not to bring more rules, not to judge you on the rules you would failed on, but to bring salvation. And this is an interesting thing. Salvation implies, right, that you're in danger. The world may not perceive itself in danger today, but it might be on the precipice of what the Bible calls hell. That's a dangerous position to be in and Christ came to rescue us from that dangerous position. So now as we go on, we have to know that every aspect of our past, present and future is predicated and bought for us by grace. Right. Through Christ on the cross. Yeah. So when we look at this and we look what Paul's just trying to say is as you communicate this message to the world that God is our savior, remember it's of grace. This is not more law, not more rules. This is a rescue, Amen. this is a rescue. Okay, so Jesus came to save sinners. Hmm. Well, his next point in verses uh, 11 to 14 starts at verse 12, and it actually skips over 13, so let's read verses 12 and 14. Because grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now what's interesting is, is that grace came not only to rescue us from sin, right? You, to bring salvation, but it came to train us how to live rightly and to give power to live rightly. So it's gonna help us. Now train is another word for discipline, right? That means it might have some uh, aspects of it that sound punitive. God is going to get His message across through grace, not through more laws. What do laws make us want to do? Break them. Right? Tell me when I have to go to bed. It'll be later than that. If you don't tell me, I probably would have gone to bed earlier. Okay? So the point is, is law, God knows, makes us rebel, but grace trains us. Grace is His kind hand. Grace is His disciplining hand. He doesn't discipline in judgment. He disciplines in grace. He's training us. He's trying to set more behavior in us. So we have to look at this really quickly and say, well, what is it training us to do? Well, we're going to study this a little bit later, but it says we're going to live self-controlled lives. Now, self-controlled is another word for sensibly. Now, what's the opposite of sensibly? Senseless? Not thinking? Okay, so he's gonna teach us to live by thinking what we know in our heart and know in our mind is true and act on that rather than by our emotions, by what we see, what feels good. We're gonna think and we're gonna use senses, right? And we're gonna live self-controlled. We're gonna live upright, godly, devout lives. Now, he's redeemed us for this purpose, right? That's what he redeemed us for. And he says, and to be redeemed, we have to go quickly because I don't have time to go through grace, but redeemed means to buy back, right, to pay a ransom price to be delivered. That ransom price was Jesus, okay? Jesus himself gave his own body as a ransom price for us. And it says, that, what did that do? And it says it bought us back and gave us to God to be pure, to be a people of his own possession, and to be zealous for good works. So is that, is that what characterizes you now, that you're his? It should. Because if you're not pure, if you're not zealous for good works, then his purchase didn't have its effect. Because that's why he bought you. And don't you know in 1 Corinthians 6 it says, Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God with your bodies. See, it's all connected here. He bought you not to just hang out as your old self, right. but to be purified Amen. and to be zealous for good works. Now, When is that supposed to take place? This is the critical ingredient here. Remember I talked about there was past, present, and future. Okay, the past is Jesus Christ came at a point in time in the past, did he not? Was there not an incarnation? Was there not a Bethlehem? Was there not a Calvary? The Calvary has a date in history. Okay, that's past. What Christ did for us in the past bought us salvation. And that grace bought us salvation. Grace today in the present age, if you look in in the verse, is it verse uh, 12? See? Live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So right now, God's grace is being manifest through you because He's training you to be godly, zealous for good works, and to demonstrate this grace that actually was first represented by Christ Now you have the job to represent it. And when does that stop? When does that job stop? Well, it stops on earth in verse 13 because that's where we have hope. But again, if God's goal in your life was just to get you saved and sanctified, would He not take you home immediately upon saving you? Won't you be sanctified instantly when you land in heaven? right? So if his goal is to sanctify you, giving you more rules, letting the Spirit train you through grace over time in this earth wouldn't be consistent with that goal unless there's a different goal. And that goal is you are the representative of God's grace on earth right now, right now. Wherever you are, wherever you are placed whatever home you're in, whatever work environment you're in, you are an evidence of God's saving grace to mankind. That's why it's so important what Paul's telling us to do. You got to do it because otherwise you're not communicating this message accurately. And thirdly, the grace of God gives Christians hope. And I got to go fast because it says the blessed hope, verse 13, we are waiting for our blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now hope, we know, is a positive expectation for good, right? Amen. And so it says that uh, in 2 in, uh, Thessalonians, it says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. So this grace was intended to bring you hope. Why? Because the return of Christ is our guarantee. Now, if he just disappeared and never came back, what kind of a guarantee would that be? Not too good. Because a lot of the things you sacrifice in this life, he says, I will pay back in the next. Doesn't he? Yeah. What, 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 kind of sacri- what kind of a God would that be? He says, I want you to give up everything right now, but there's no payback. I mean, uh, that would be a little tough to get people to follow you, wouldn't it? Well, I still might follow him if I got out of hell. Okay? If you save me from my sin. But here it is, the return of Christ and the comp- will complete the salvation that grace brought, bought. you catch that? The return of Christ completes the salvation that grace bought because there'll be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sadness, no more separation, no more saying goodbye. Oh, man, I want it. Amen. I'd love that. Amen. It says, being with Jesus Even if those things didn't matter to you, it says, For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Being in the presence of Jesus is great joy. You can't help it. And it says also that you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Man, we have a hope that needs to be shared with this world. And his return gives us urgency. Now, what he's telling us is how you live matters because you are the representation of God's grace. It's not your theology, it's not what you believe in your heart, it's how you live that communicates what God can do with a saved sinner. So let's move on. Okay. If I uh, start in verse 1 and verse 15, as we said, I going to skip over this really quickly, but it's important because it sets the stage for everything else you're going to hear. If you didn't trust God's word for God's word's sake, trust this. And it says, Teach what accords with sound doctrine, verse 1 and verse 15, and declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What he's telling us Right now, is that we need to treat godly living just as strongly and firmly as godly doctrine. Amen. Amen. You cannot disregard godly living. And in fact, it tells leaders if people have been exhorted, you've urged them, you've pleaded with them, please live this way, please live honestly, please live faithfully, please don't steal from your boss, please. And they don't, you're supposed to rebuke them, you're not supposed to ignore them. You're not supposed to say, well, they're having tough times. These are important doctrines, and that's healthy living. So, as we begin this, let's do one other thing. We need to uh, understand that verses 2 through 10, he's trying to describe what Christian living that has an impact looks like. Doesn't anybody want impact in their world? Does anybody want impact? Does anybody want to make a difference? Paul is now going to describe the things you should display that God said will make a difference. God said will make a difference. So now it's interesting, too, to me that, as I said before, that God thought it important enough to break this out by age group and by gender. And we'll find out why. But each of you here today should hear a message, though, that's been designed for you. And these verses are all guaranteed to help evangelism. That's what his whole chapter is about. Is how we live makes a difference. Why? To promote the gospel of Jesus Christ because we're living examples of his grace. Okay? So let's go forward. It says, now, we have to understand first things first. Did God give us more rules so we have a longer list of things to obey? No. Okay, do, are these rules that we might follow and obey, will they emphasize our holiness? Will they make me more holy? No. What he's saying is, these verses apply to your life if you wanna make a difference in the unsaved world around you. That's what this is about. So what, what I would say is this way, these actions, these commands don't improve your righteous standing before God. But they certainly make you useful to Him. It will certainly make you have an impact. If you want an impact, this is what you do. Because God has to communicate His message to this world through saved, transformed sinners, doesn't He? And if we are a bad representation of what God's saving and transforming power can do, who would want what we have to offer? Am I dead? I'm back. Okay, is it that bad? Okay, Um, so let's go here. Turn to verse 5, look at verse 5 with me. Paul gives us three purpose uh, clauses in this thing of why it's so important, why it's so important that we behave this way. The first one, so that the word of God will not be reviled. Do you see that? Another word is blasphemed dishonored, injured, held in disrespect, considered a lie, disregarded. What he's saying that this list of things that you will do, if you do not do them, you allow the world around you to revile the Word of God, not just you. More is at stake than just you. The very Word of God will be blasphemed because they're going to say, hey, this has no power. And so what happens is, is they look at our theology, they look at what we believe, who cares? But I look how they live. It has no power. And so our un- disobedience, our inability to live grace-filled lives makes it shout to the world untrue, false, no power. This God cannot save. Wow. That's a lot at stake, is it not? Now, we saw once before, and I won't go into it because I don't have a lot of time to do it, but if you look up 2 Samuel 12, you'll see what God said through the prophet Nathan to David when he sinned with Bathsheba. David confessed his sin, and God said, okay, I'll forgive you. You won't die. He deserved to. The law said he should. But what he did say is this, but because you caused the people the nations around you, to blaspheme me, your child will die. Wow. The biggest offense here, the biggest problem here wasn't his own sin personally. He caused the nations to blaspheme. That's what we do. When we don't live righteous lives before our friends, our co-workers, our unsaved people around us, they blaspheme the word of God. So what do you think the world says when they hear of a prominent Christian who's caught in adultery? Lies. Thieves. They say we're hypocrites, don't they? They said your God doesn't have the power to change anybody. Why follow you? And that mocks the Word of God. Because how you live matters. Paul provides a second verse in 8. And he says, So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Now the concept here is the same, so I'm not going to go length. But the, the, the outcome is a little different. What he'll say is that when you give someone an opportunity to criticize you because of your unholy, disconnected living, it says they will have evil things to say, not just about you. What's the, what's the pronoun there? About, what's the word? Nothing evil to say about us. us. Guess what? When you don't live a godly, grace-filled life, it shouts to the world, every Christian is the same. The gospel they all believe is false. Paul, who wasn't even at Crete, used the word us, right? And he says, you'll discredit me. Titus, make sure these people in Crete do the right thing, because if they don't, they'll discredit me and all other Christians. This is powerful stuff, folks. And the third thing is in verse 10, and it says, these behaviors must be followed so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now this is the most remarkable of the three, I think, because we know that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is probably the most beautiful thing in the universe, right? What better, more wonderful picture can you have than Jesus Christ dying to save sinners? Is there a better story? There is no better story, no, no more pretty picture but it says that we have the ability to adorn. Now, what's that mean? Well, it's cosmeo in Greek. It means cosmetics. It means to make beautiful or to add to its attractiveness. So we should ask ourselves, is our our behavior, is, is our life making the Word of God and His fame and glory more attractive by how we're living? It can if we follow these steps. But if we're not, we're, we're discrediting it. We're, we're like we're, we're graffitiing over the art. There's a beautiful picture, but we can't look at it anymore because our artwork is in the way. People can't see Jesus. Now, let's look at something. Um, because God's word and God's reputation is at stake, we need to make sure that what we do in life is like Jesus was. And what was Jesus. He was full of grace and truth. He just wasn't soft, kind, but I don't have any rules really. I just, I'm just a nice guy. No, he backed everything he did with truth, right? So he has truth. So too many times in the Christian life, I see Christians who are armed with truth but no grace. And what that leads to is a life that looks more like a life that will dishonor the gospel because they're not kind, they're not loving, they're not gracious, they're right. Jesus was full of grace and truth and how we live matters. Now, let's just start real quickly because we don't have a lot of time to fly through these categories. Older men, now I know nobody wants to raise their hand for an older man, but Paul said that older men and older women were those folks, don't hit me, over 60. Now, the people that will be most happy in this room are the younger women and the younger men because anybody under 60 is considered younger. I'll stick there first. No, um, so older men. And what he wants to do, and I want you to understand this, is what are the characteristics that most fit an older man or an older woman to make them stand out as being transformed by the grace of God? That's what this is about. This is not, do you have your life in order? Can you do a budget? This is what will make you stand out to your neighbors as a godly man. And he has six things for the older men. Sober-minded, temperate, not excessive. He's not an excessive drinker. He's not an excessive anything. Uh, He's not prone to excesses. He's focused on what matters. He's dignified. He lives a, a, a life worthy of respect. See, in the Old Testament, they said you had to respect your elders right? Did you have to respect your elders because they were respectable? No. But he's telling these men to be respectable. Earn the respect. Be self-controlled, sensible. These are in stark contrast, aren't they not, with a lot of youthful qualities like recklessness, they'll live forever, thoughtlessness. Um, These are qualities that he's asking for that should show up as you mature in life. You're seasoned. You've lived enough life to know what matters. That's what he's talking about here. Older men, you're supposed to be sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. Which that sound, remember we talked about it last week, that means healthy, and so you're supposed to be healthy in these things. Now, that means there's no cranky old men. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Um, Sound in faith, that means they're not easily dissuaded. They're going to stay on target. They're going to be faithful and that's what steadfast is. They endure to the end. Are you a man that can be relied upon? If you are, God says that will stand out in this world. Older women, there's a couple things that are a little bit different here. Reverent in behavior and according to First Peter, they said, let your adorning be the hidden beauty of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Okay, they're not slanderers. That means not like the devil. Now, I don't know why he wrote this uh, to older women, but it says that, uh, in my study, that older men and younger men seem to be more physical. They'll hurt people physically. But it says that older women might do more so with words. They don't even have the strength to hit you, but they'll take you out verbally, okay? What it says, don't do that. Don't be a person who snaps back at somebody verbally. They're not slaves to much wine, and they teach what is good. So an important role for women is to pass on what they've learned and experienced and gained. And it says that even in verses four and five. It says, so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now again, this is to the younger women, under 60. I want some kudos for that, for the younger women. Uh, but they're supposed to actually, the older women, train the younger women to love their husbands. Now, doesn't that seem odd, love your husband? Don't they get married because they're in love? Not in this time. And what happens if you fall out of love? Now, this love, too, is not agape love. This is tender, compassionate, affectionate love. When these arranged marriages happen, they may not even know the person. They had to be trained how to love a husband. Odd, isn't it? but we're still supposed to love, tender, compassionately our husbands. When you do this, it shouts volumes to your world today. Did you know that? When you are tender, affectionate, and kind to your husband, the world takes notice of it, and so does your husband. Self-controlled, same, pure, free from defilement, chaste, modest. Does that describe our young ladies today, modest? See, we might be called old fuddy-duddy, to dress sometimes and act sometimes like this is. But God is calling us to a higher standard. God is calling us to a higher standard. Yes. And it says working at home. Man, I'm not going to get involved in here, but there's some women who can't because they must work for their jobs. But it says God puts a high value on women who stay at home and care for their homes. So do not take a backseat, women, that are homemakers. Do not. You do not have a second-class job. In fact, God says that job might be more noticeable to the world around you to save sinners than any CEO job at a corporation. You got it? And it says, at last, submissive to their own husbands. When the, That's got to be the oddest thing in the world today in this age of everything is about me. God says that if they're submissive to their own husbands to willingly choose to obey, to rank themselves under they're gonna be like Jesus who willingly submitted to the Father. Jesus was not less. Jesus was not less than the Father, but he submitted to the Father. And that's what God's calling to the women to do. Now, that's hard. I'm not a woman, I can't uh, relate to everything you might go through, but I know that God's word promises that the results he's promised will be true if you do this. So it matters young women, older women, how you live. He talks to the younger men and I have to say that there's a longer list here and it starts off with uh, be self-controlled like that's a tough one for younger men but he also talks to Titus who is a younger man and says the rest of these things younger man I want you to show the other younger man how to do don't just teach it it's an interesting if you look at the wording it says Urge younger men to be self-controlled and show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. So we're supposed to be models, okay, to one another of these traits of grace. And you know what a model is, by the way, in this form. It's like a tap and die that when you strike it, it puts an impression on something. That's what he's telling Titus to do to these young men. Make an impression on these kids. Live in such a way that you make an impression. Is that how you live, younger men? It says, be abounding in good works, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Wow, speech. Is your speech profitable, life-giving, encouraging, building up, or is it complaining, tear down, cut low, sarcastic? It says we stand out when we have sound, healthy speech. Because young men, it matters how you live. And last, I think it hits most of us, because it's bond servants. It says bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our Savior. Now, submissive we get, we've talked about that, to rank yourself under, well-pleasing, be excellent at what you do, make sure you satisfy what they really asked for, not what they said, not argumentative. Man, if I could get through some of our teenage conversations without an argument, I'd really be happy. And I don't know how many of you are argumentative at work, but according to God, that does not adorn the gospel of grace. Not pilfering. This is a toughie. Because a lot of them would say, well, that's just not stealing the truck. No. How are you doing with your time, your expense account, the way you use your time at work, or the way you talk about uh, things and you take them that aren't yours? Uh, it, it doesn't have to be a thing. It could be time. It says we're not supposed to take anything that doesn't belong to us. Because it's really difficult. It's really difficult. Let me put it this way. You could be witnessing handing out tracts to your job, your co-workers, uh, talking to people about Jesus until you're blue in the face. But if they know you leave early, they know you take things that don't belong to you, office supplies, they know you talk bad about the boss when he's not in the room, and when his eye is not on you, you don't work as hard. It says you are not adorning the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world is watching Did you know that? The world is watching. You don't even know who's watching, but they are. And how you live matters. So let me just close with this. See, whether or not your life already matches these list of things for your age category, know that we're always saved by grace. It's not by the keeping of this list. And God is the electing, saving God and works don't make us acceptable to God. They just make us more useful. So if he's going to save someone, he will save that person. That's why I believe. But he's not going to use you. No matter what you say and how much you witness, if your life doesn't match these traits, you're not useful. or as useful as he wants you to be. Now, we know that nothing displays god's glory in grace and salvation like a guilty rotten transformed sinner all you got to know all you got to know is if anybody was running in the wrong crowds and they see the right the about face of that person does that shouts volumes doesn't it now if i come up with you and said hey i've got a i got a great diet for you have you tried it no but I got a great diet. Let's say that. Have you tried it? Yep. Have you lost any weight? Nope. But I got a great diet. <laughs> Are they going to be wanting that diet from you? Or, or, or look at it this way you show up with the Spanky and our gang haircut, and they said, Man, I got the greatest barber in town. Want to go see him? Whoo, no. We recommend a God who's wonderful, who's uncomparable, and our lives need to reflect and adorn such a graceful, wonderful God. So now, because you know how we live matters, let me ask you a few questions. So how are you doing in adorning the gospel, right where you are? Not are you perfect, but how are you doing? Are they seeing your changed life? Is Christianity making a difference in your life? Do you live any differently? than your neighbor? Do you watch any less football than your neighbor? Do you go uh, to the lake any less than your neighbor? Do you work at any good work any more than your neighbor? That's shouting volumes to them. Don't be like this guy. There's a poem that I read. Because some people are what I'm going to call invisible Christians. It says, I dreamt death came the other night, and heaven's gate swung wide, and Jesus there with radiance bright ushered me inside, and there, to my astonishment, stood folks I judged and labeled as quite unfit, little worse, spiritually disabled. Indignant words rose to my lips, but never were set free, for by the look of stunned surprise, not one expected me. Is that you? Will your neighbors know you know this tr- saving, transforming God by how you live? Is God's grace producing godliness and self control in you? Do you have a passion for good works? That's a test. If you have no passion for good works, I'd really go back to step one. Do you have this grace? God said that Jesus' redemptive power bought a people who were zealous for good works. You're either bought or you're not bought. You either belong to him or you don't. You need to check. Do you have a zealousness for good works? And are you living in light of and in great anticipation of Christ's return? It says it's the hope of the church, right? The blessed hope. So when you think of Christ's return, does that give you hope or anxiety? Do you anticipate eternal reward and joy and pleasure at the right hand of Jesus? Or do you anticipate punishment, suffering, separation, loneliness? The difference is the grace of God that appeared to all men at Calvary. It's not the rule, list of rules. That is about us being effective Christians where we are. That's about us extending the grace of God in this period between Christ came and Christ is coming again. And in the middle is us. The mission is ours. I would just uh, ask you to consider where are you in that mission? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word tells us all we need to know for life and godliness. And that you want to use us, Father. You want to use us to extend your kingdom and to show the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world in ways that they can recognize and give glory to God. Father, forgive us for not living in a way that magnified and adorned your gospel. But Father, help us to know and to follow your word and apply it so that we can make a difference in our world for Jesus. And Father, for those that don't know this hope, they don't have the hope, would you allow them to know Jesus Christ today so that their destiny will be changed because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's the mission he had, and that's our mission too. In Jesus' name, amen.